You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, J.T. Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers today i'm super excited to have one of my favorite writers back on the show wendy corsi staub has a brand new book it's called the other family and you know wendy is a master of of mysteries and uh the other family is is one of those books that you must have on your bookshelf this year this is uh this is a fantastic book i've had an arc of it for uh, a few weeks now, and it's one of those books that after you finish reading, it just stays in your in your brain. And uh, you these characters um, ha- have really had an impact on me, Wendy. And, uh, you know, for someone to that has written as many books as you have to continue to create characters that connect so deeply with people, um, you know, kudos to you. This is this is. I know it's early in the year, but this has been one of my favorite books uh, that I've read in quite a while. Oh, so, thank all you. that to say, welcome <laughs> I'm back. Jumping to the up show. and down, Hank. Thank you. <laughs> You're so welcome. I, I mean every bit of it. Um, Wendy, it's been a couple of years since we chatted. Um, you you've been on the show twice before. Um, we didn't get to connect last year. Um, but you know, since we talked last, when we first, well, when we talked last, let me get my words straight. Um, the, uh, at the time the, the COVID was just up and I, I, I back and I kind of skimmed through our last chat and I don't think we even mentioned, um, that it was going on because I, I don't, I don't think any of us foresaw what was going to happen in the, you know, in, in the, the coming two years. Um, how's it been for you? How did, well, first off, have, have you and your family stayed healthy? And, uh, and, and how, how have you guys managed? Uh, well, we stayed healthy until, um, December. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we were vaccinated and boosted and everything, but my two sons, um, had breakthrough cases. One was right before Christmas and the other one was on new year's. So, um, they were both living with us. They're, they're, uh, young adults. Uh, one has the first one has since moved out. The second one's done with his quarantine, so um, they are okay. They were relatively mild cases, and because we had such a hard time getting tested here, my husband and I were tested. We all tested negative initially, and then um, you know we had a little sore throat. So now we're not sure. It just seems to be everywhere. But I'm you know more concerned about um, you know I've had family members and friends who have really had a rough go of it so i feel like now i don't have to worry about my two boys at least um they they came through it and they're not going to bring it home to us again right you know it's it's hard it's been rough yeah yeah um you know i've talked to a lot of um writers and it it's um it's really interesting wendy because writers tend to kind of live uh solitary lives in a in for a lot of the time um you know we we tend to to work in a home office a lot of times and and spend hours alone just you know 
just us and the keyboard. Um, and so, you know, having everybody locked down and um, it, you would think it, it, ha- it wouldn't have a whole lot of effect on on most writers. But there, there's something mental that happens with kind of knowing that the, the rest of the world is, is there with you. And um, it, how how have you handled um, you know, the, the, the preceding two years, uh, how, how has it affected your, your mental game and, and how you approach the work that you do? Um, that's a really good question. And you're so right. You know, we are used to being working at home and being alone and isolation. Um, but to suddenly have other people doing that under our (laughs) roof, um, can throw right. us. So there was that aspect. It wasn't even just an, a mental, emotional issue for me. It was a physical logistic where, you know, my older son was suddenly working his job. Um, you know, he used to commute to the city. He was about to move out and he was upstairs. My husband was completely working from home in our living room. And then I had to move our college senior home that March. Um, so he was, you know, taking the rest of his classes and very miserable, I have to say. Um, so he was at home. So just for our, you know, Wi-Fi alone was a little strained, but just having all of those people around suddenly rattling around the house. And I was the point person for groceries. And, um, you know, we were really trying to be careful. So so there was a lot. It was exhausting. And just the fear, you know, my um, my widowed dad, my husband's widowed dad, all of that, um, those concerns because they were isolated too. Uh, that was really rough. Um, so yeah, it took a toll emotionally, um, and physically, I guess. Um, (laughs) but, but after those first few months, I think we all kind of exhaled when we realized, you know, the worst was kind of behind us, the scariest part, because I do live in the New York city area and, you know, this is where it sort of began. And, um, the patient, the first patient in New York worked in my husband's bu- building and rode on his train, and, uh, you know, so there was, there were hazmat suits involved and a lot of fear. Um, and, and once that subsided, I think we hit our stride and you know, life, life has been as normal as it can be for us or for anyone else, I think since. Yeah. Um, I, you messaged me this morning and, uh, you know, said, uh, just verifying, are we doing audio only or is this going to be video? And that has become, um, something way more prevalent in, in writers lives, uh, doing these zoom appearances and stuff in bookstores where, where, uh, book tours used to be a thing where you would go physically meet people, do some readings, sign books, all of that sort of stuff. And, and more and more of those have been, relegated to to making zoom appearances um how how do you see you know other than than that part of it um how has it affected publishing um well first and foremost i think uh well there is that i mean that is very important but also um i think more people are reading (laughs) in a great way i think that it's 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 brought people back to books um i just i've noticed that a lot of people have, have reached out to me and said, you know, I, I haven't read in a while. I discovered you, or I just came back to you after years. So I think in that sense, it's a positive thing for publishing. Um, but we are suffering lately supply chain issues, just like any other business. And, um, you know, it just pushed back my new release date by a couple of weeks because the printer, you know, they, they couldn't get it printed and they can't get them shipped. And so there were issues like that. Um, those, yeah. those are the not so great things. <laughs> 
Well, and and Kindle publishing and audiobook publishing have really had a heyday over the last couple of years because those things are not affected by supply chain issues for the most part. Um, And uh, so have have you noticed your uh, readership, uh, you know, more people kind of digging into your Kindle back catalog and that sort of thing? Yeah, uh, I would say audio in particular, I've yeah. noticed um, a lot of people. It's the fastest growing uh, yeah. growth market in publishing right now. It is. And I welcome that because I read almost exclusively on audio. Um, I do too these days. Do you? Oh, you do too. Okay. And most of my reasoning is that I can't see very well anymore. (laughs) And also I don't have time to really sit still with a book because I'm so busy with other things. I feel like that allows me to multitask. And, and as a writer, I'm such a visual writer that when I'm not reading it, it tends to stay in its place. Like somebody else's story remain somebody else's story and it doesn't work its way into mine as it does when I'm reading. So I feel like, does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Things We Never Got Over, the new book by best-selling author Lucy Score. Bearded bad boy Barber Knox refers to live his life the way he takes his coffee, alone, unless you count his basset hound Waylon. Knox doesn't tolerate drama even when it comes in the form of a stranded runaway bride. Naomi wasn't just running away from her wedding. She was riding to the rescue of her estranged twin to knock him out Virginia, a rough-around-the-edges town where disputes are settled the old-fashioned way, with fist and beer, usually in that order. Too bad for Naomi, her evil twin hasn't changed at all. After helping herself to Naomi's car and cash, Tina leaves her with something unexpected, the niece Naomi didn't know she had. Now she's stuck in town with no car, no job, no plan, and no home with an 11-year-old going on 30 to take care of. There's a reason Knox doesn't do complications or high-maintenance women, especially not the romantic ones. But since Naomi's life imploded right in front of him, the least he can do is help her out of her jam. And just as soon as she stops getting into new trouble, he can leave her alone and get back to his peaceful, solitary life. At least that's the plan until the trouble turns to real danger. Things We Never Got Over, the new book by best-selling author Lucy Score. Dabble is a proud sponsor of Author Stories. Dabble is an easy-to-use cloud-based writing tool that gives writers a way to organize, plot, and create amazing stories wherever they are. Write in our desktop app, on your Mac or Windows computer, tablet, or mobile device. Dabble syncs your latest version with the cloud on all your devices. Write anywhere and anytime inspiration strikes. We got you. Dabble is my preferred writing tool, and I think it will be yours as well. Visit DabbleWriter.com for your free trial. An Innocent Client, the first book in the Joe Dillard legal thriller series. A preacher is found brutally murdered in a Tennessee motel room. A beautiful, mysterious young girl is accused. In this best-selling debut, criminal defense lawyer Joe Dillard has become jaded over the years as he's tried to balance his career against his conscience. Savvy but cynical, Dillard wants to quit doing criminal defense, but he can't resist the chance to represent someone who might actually be innocent. His drug-addicted sister has just been released from prison and his mother is succumbing to Alzheimer's. But Dillard's commitment to the case never wavers despite the personal troubles and professional demands that threaten to destroy him. 
chosen by BookBub readers as one of the top 100 crime novels of all time, get started on this great series with an innocent client where it all started. Read for free with Kindle Unlimited or buy it in paperback or audiobook. An Innocent Client by Scott Pratt. And I also think that because we all now have a phone in our pocket or on our person all the time and, and headphones are so easy to connect, you know, whether Bluetooth headphones or even, you know, a wired headset, it's just so easy now that, that you can you can have half a dozen books on your phone at any time and, um, you know, launch it while you're doing other things that that has that has transformed my life for sure. Me too. And certain books, I think, really lend themselves well to audio. You know, I love hearing the characters and it depends on the narrator, but I really, and I, I will confess, I even listen to my own on audio because. As you should. <laughs> well, um, you know, I, I, I haven't, they're not familiar to me anymore. I'm not living in them because I wrote them a few years ago or a few decades yeah. ago or whatever. And I like having someone bring my characters alive. So it's, it's awesome. <laughs> well, a, a good friend of mine, um, Nick Cole told me um, a few years ago that when he's editing uh, at, you know, after he's written the book and he's gone through a couple of edits, he will read the book aloud to just see how the, the dialogue is coming across and, and that when you read it out, when you hear the story out loud, um, the things that your eyes just kind of gloss over because they've seen the same error, if you want to look at it that way, you know, time and time again, you can now hear it. And and it becomes a, a different story when it's uh, acted out. Um, yes. Have you have you noticed or, or or do you even think that this would be an issue with you that that your stories start to change slightly, knowing that so many people will be listening to it as opposed to reading it? Um, I wouldn't say that the stories change, although there are times when I'm listening to my own work and I feel like, God, I wish I could just edit it, you know, streamline it a little bit because it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, um, it might seem to drag a little bit or here or there. So I'm, it's not something I necessarily have in mind when I'm writing, but when I'm done with the manuscript, I do often read them aloud to myself. Um, just as you said, and is, is it Nick? Did you say Nick Cole said that? Yeah, was, yes. yeah that's, that's such great advice. And I've often said that, um, I used to be an editor early in my career and I would say that to my authors, you know, read it out loud and, and just, it, it allows you to get that distance when you don't have enough distance from a project you get different perspective hearing it for sure um when do you have published more than 80 books um now is is that right it's actually over 90 (laughs) i've been busy (laughs) yes yes you have um how, how do you keep the ideas fresh you know um you know kind of you know the most trite question a writer can be asked is where do you get your ideas from when you know the truth is story ideas are everywhere um but how do you battle fatigue um of just you know i've i've written i've written about this kind of topic before or you know this this character is starting to feel like you know someone that i've written a dozen times before How, how do you how does it stay fresh for you that's such a great question because that's 
always been an issue. As you said, it's it's not coming up with the ideas. <laughs> That's never a problem. Yeah. Part of the problem is finding the time to write them all um, in this lifetime. And the other problem is, is definitely keeping them fresh because your readers want you to do exactly what you did before, but in a completely different way. <laughs> so it's, it's an impossible challenge every time, I think. Um, so I often now will um, try to come at something from the opposite angle, I will twist the story and say, okay, what, what does my main character want? And then take a step back and say, what if they wanted the complete opposite? Or what was I planning on having happen? Well, what if the complete opposite happened? Um, so that does help. It's sort of a way of twisting and it gives you a different perspective and it keeps it fresh. Um, I've done that the last few books. Uh, a writing friend of mine taught me that trick <laughs> a few years back when I was stuck. Um, and then the other thing I do is I bounce ideas off of my family, my poor family. <laughs> <laughs> so with this book, for instance, when the, when the other family, um, when I conceived it, I had just moved my younger son home from Ithaca. He was in college and miserable. He was a senior in college. So in March, here he was at home with us and I was trying to distract him. And I said, Hey, you want to hear about what I'm writing? And you know, he didn't, but, but he's a, he was a film TV major, uh, TV was his thing story, you know, not a writer, but story. So I told him my plot and I thought he was ignoring me, um, and just, you know, grumpy. But then he said, well, wait a minute, what if you did it this way instead? And that became, you know, my twist, he twisted it again. The story has a huge twist at the end. He came at it with a, with a fresh twist. I didn't know if I could pull it off. I, sent the proposal without his twist and one of the editors who read it said yeah this is great but you know what you should do and it was it was his twist so, so oh that's so funny yeah so it was because i'm not one of those people who likes to give people pages to read i never let anyone read it while i'm writing it um but but speaking the story aloud or or sort of bouncing ideas it has proven valuable now, I'm a control freak, but I've learned to be open. <laughs> so. Well, over over ninety books, uh, Wendy. How do you, you know, kind of looking back over over the work that you've done, can you see a um, a trajectory of sorts of of uh, of kind of genre and um, and 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 how your books have have grown or changed topically? Um, like, do you can the the types of books that you're writing now, um, is that the 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 genre and and um, uh, do those what you're writing now is that what you've always um, kind of aspired to, or do you feel like that that your writing has changed with with you as you've matured and and your taste have changed? Um, how how do you how do you judge your your catalog and, and your trajectory? Uh, I think it's absolutely um, changed along the way. I mean, I sold my first book. I was married a few months when I sold my first book. I was in my mid twenties, young, you know, just uh, not that I'm not still young, <laughs> <laughs> giving myself away. I'm really not young anymore, but um, you know, I was a new wife. I had no children. Um, we lived in the city. I was commuting to a day job. So I feel like, you know, those are the things I, I could write about then. I did start out writing young adult. Um, that was what I always wanted to write. But when I turned my 
my um, focus to adult suspense a few books in, I think it was. Um, I initially wasn't writing what I would consider domestic suspense. And then, you know, I, I realized I, I had my first son and, um, you know, they put that baby in your arms and you realize there is nothing you wouldn't do to protect him. And suddenly everything felt really dangerous, you know? <laughs> and, and so I started to write about regular people, people like me, um, you know, people with homes and families and uh, just just a different brand of fiction. It's domestic psychological suspense now. And that's been rewarding for me. I think I kind of, I exercise some of my uh, fears <laughs> on paper so that they don't come to life. <laughs> well, that was going to be my next question is that, that when you when you realize that when you're holding that baby and everything changed, um, now you want to write stories about, um, you know, people that are struggling with that. Like, you know, it, it's kind of it's kind of funny that, you know, be, now that I feel this now, I want to write stories about kind of the worst possible scenarios that could happen. Um, <laughs> why do why do we love these kinds of stories so much if they scare us so, so much um, and they make us kind of look at these fears that we secretly have kind of look at these fears in the face. Why do we love reading about them? I personally find that there's a lot of tension and conflict and, and, you know, drama just in an ordinary household, but, you know, leave the, the suspense part out of it. But, you know, our lives when we're, you know, we don't necessarily have to be parents or, you know, I just feel like, a daily life is fraught <laughs> with tension. Um, so taking those ordinary things and working them into a suspense plot, I find like it enhances it. And it's um, there's always a lot of subplot and there's so much room for character development. Um, my characters are wrestling with various, you know, uh, issues that most people wrestle with at one time or another in their lives. So, so that to me has allowed me to sort of give my stories depth that maybe the earlier ones didn't have. Yeah. Say. So you, you told us a minute ago about the other family and, and kind of the proposal process of it. But one thing that I've, I've loved asking people lately is um, I, I'm, I'm utterly fascinated with the beginnings of things. At one moment, the other family does not exist in any form or fashion. It just, it, it, it doesn't exist. And then either a character walked onto the stage of your mind or you started thinking about a scenario. Maybe you saw a news uh, program or read an article and you know, started playing the what if game. And then you, you know, cast this what if scenario with with characters that come to you. And then in, in one way, um, the other family does exist then. And then it's your job as the writer to kind of excavate that story and, and, and you know, see how it plays out. What is that? What was that first moment of creation uh, for you, for the other family? Uh, well, it wasn't the beginning, which is interesting. <laughs> that story okay. began with the end. Um, with There's a there's a huge reveal. When I thought of that, um I just thought, can I pull this off, this twist? And what would make this twist most interesting? What kind of a backdrop? What kind of a plot? Um, and so it really began at the end. Um, and then, oh, mm, 
what was the rest of the question? Because I've been thinking about, it's funny, I've been thinking all day because I'm working on the next one now, um, which I already sold. And I keep remembering that that when I wrote The Other Family, and this pertains as well to the beginning, um, when I wrote it, I started it too soon, uh, according to my editor. So the proposal that I gave her with the first few chapters, I mean, those chapters didn't even make it into the book. You know, I had to jump back. So, um uh, Isn't that funny how that happens? Yeah. The thing that you think is the story winds up not even being the not, <laughs> not even being in the story. No, it already happened by the time the story in its current um, you know, in its current form. That stuff already happened and we don't see it happen. So I'm I'm lousy at beginnings, you know, I guess. <laughs> I think I need to start in the middle. That was always my advice and I should be following it myself. Well, you know, starting in the middle, um, you you're at a great vantage point because you get to look back to the beginning and look forward to the ending. That's that's not a bad place to start. It's true. You're right. And especially when you're the one who knows what's going to happen. Because right. <laughs> <laughs> I was always the person who wanted to read the last page first. <laughs> right, right. So tell us about Nora Howell. Um, who is she? What, what do we learn about her in the beginning? And um, why, as readers, uh, is she a character that that you want us to care about um nora is she's so different from me personally i mean there are always bits and pieces of me i would say in my heroines but she's she's a perfectionist you know she looks perfect she her life seems to be perfect you know she's very much about uh control which she does share with me that's a you know i like things to be the way I like them to be, I guess. Um, my husband would say that for sure. <laughs> um, but I, I feel like she's a kind of person who, you know, things should be in their place and everything is, it should appear to be perfect, even if it's not. So she's very conscious of image and, um, and, you know, into this perfect family comes a very imperfect, um, plot, you know, they, I, because that to me was so interesting. What if these, seemingly perfect people just you know if they were in a situation that they could not really control or that she could not control so that was important to me and it's important in the story the you um there, there's a really interesting character in the book the the watcher um <laughs> tell me about the watcher what what is what is this all about yeah you know i used to love to read and write stalker novels um that was my thing and at one point i remember I don't know if it was an editor or somebody said, you know, stalkers aren't in style anymore. Um, but who doesn't love a good stalker book? Right, right. <laughs> and who hasn't walked by a window at night in a lit room and looked outside and thought, God, I hope there's there's no one out there. It's scary. So that just just that um, that theme was prevalent more in my early work, and I really wanted to come back to it. And I I love the idea of you know he's kind of like a there's a peeping tom. Um, theme a little bit in this so that's creepy to me the other family is a, a standalone novel right yes finally i'm back to standalone yes <laughs> well I, I was gonna ask you i know that you've written quite a number of series and um as a writer what does writing a standalone um you know on the surface you you think that um with a standalone nobody's safe uh, because there are no series characters that need to carry on to the next book. And even though we we love series for all sorts of reasons, um, 
there, there's one thing about a series is, you know, if you're reading Harry Potter, you know, Harry's going to at least survive to book seven. <laughs> um, you know, it's kind of a given. Um, but with the standalone, all bets are off. Um, what does it afford you as a writer? Um, how does that free you? Um, but then how does also writing a series, um, how is that more beneficial for a writer? And there's there's pros and cons for both. But how do you view them? You know, your questions are always so great. I just want to say that here because you're making me think, Hank. This is great. Um, so because I'm a nosy, curious person. <laughs> me too. I'm so nosy. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, I would say that the constraints of standalone, um, even okay. So you're building a world no matter what you're writing, right? Like you are building this fictional world. There's so much more room in a trilogy i've written so many trilogies um there's so much more room to expand that world and delve into that world and and you know it becomes huge and when you're running a standalone you really have to contain that and you have to tamp down that impulse to meander because there's just not room for that you know it's much more streamlined i think um but by the same token when you're writing a standalone, you don't have to stay faithful to some throwaway thing that you did three books ago that you wish you hadn't done because the readers will remember it. And now you're, you've written yourself into a, a corner. Um, so everything is fresh and, and you're starting fresh and you have control over how this story plays out. You know, so many things when you're plotting a trilogy in book one or when you're writing book one, you don't realize might be a real problem in the future what's more scary wendy um the the idea that there might be a watcher out there or um the idea of living in a suburban neighborhood mm, oh god i think <laughs> <laughs> i think you know right now like actually when covid first hit when the pandemic first hit my husband had this fantasy of like going to some remote you know farm in the mountains somewhere i think and just like checking out so uh we kind of felt like oh god suburbia we're crushed here <laughs> surrounded by people um so yeah i i love the suburban i love the suburban setting because you know people traditionally fled the city for the suburbs because there was this um, feeling that it was safer in the suburbs, I guess, right? Like uh, or you're saving yourself, you're controlling uh, your fate because suburbs aren't dangerous, like the big bad city. So when you bring danger to the suburbs where people don't lock their door and everybody knows everybody else, it's, you know, that's creepy. But this book actually takes place in Brooklyn, so it's urban, <laughs> which is different for me from right right uh you mentioned uh, earlier that you were your your mind was was on the next book that was coming up um what are you working on now can you tell us anything about how it's shaping up sure um so the next suspense the psychological suspense um it's under contract with with uh, my same publisher harper william morrow and it is about a group of college friends, these three women who went to college together and they get together again for a girls getaway weekend after you know, living in part for all these years, buy a lottery ticket. I mean, 
think Powerball last week, right? Gigantic jackpot that no one has won. And they win. And the one who's holding the ticket goes missing, you know? So it's, that's the premise. That's, that's my elevator pitch. Um, it's tentatively called Windfall. And that'll be out sometime, uh, probably sometime, uh, I guess later this year, maybe, or early next. And then I just finished, um, I, I had another Lilydale mystery out in December, and it was called Pros and Cons. Um, it's the fourth title in my Lilydale series, and those are traditional mysteries. And I just finished writing the fifth title, and it is called The Stranger Vanishes, and that should be out this year. Um, it was just accepted for publication from Sovereign House. I love it. I can't wait to talk uh, with you about those when they drop. Um, Wendy, the other family, when people are hearing this, is going to be available everywhere. They can use the links in the show notes to grab it from Amazon or, or Audible or go visit your local bookstore and, and let's uh, let's you know throw all the money we can at, at local bookstores uh, for sure. Uh, but it, if people are are intrigued by uh, by all the stuff that you're doing, Wendy, where can they connect with you and you know dig into that massive back catalog and follow along for new news and all that good stuff? Absolutely. And, and they can find me on social media. I am often on Facebook. I'm seldom on Twitter, but I'm trying to be better about that. And I'm on Instagram, too. Um, so I love to connect with readers there. I, I've become friends with many of my readers, courtesy of social media over the years. So I welcome that. And also WendyCourcyStaub.com. Uh, they can yes. get all of uh, everything that you do there as well. Uh, Wendy, always fun to chat and to catch up. We're going to send everyone to pick up their copy of The Other Family. And uh, thank you so much for taking time to come back on the show. Oh, thank you so much, Hank. It's always great to chat with you. Thank you. Now stay tuned for an audiobook excerpt from Richard Glebe's The Jason Crane Series. Jason and Joey took their food trays outside and sat high above the parking lot on the secluded stairwell that had become their lunchtime hangout picking at their Thanksgiving specials and swapping updates. They were almost finished eating before Jason managed to screw up the courage to say what he needed to. I want to apologize. Joey looked puzzled. What the hell for? Because your coma was my fault. Yours? The horseman beamed me. You didn't. Hey, want to see something cool? Look what I found on my phone. Joey produced the device, hit a few buttons, and swiped his finger. An orange circle hung in a field of black, overexposed, something that had been moving fast when the flash caught it. I was trying to get his picture, right? Like an idiot? Well, I didn't get him, but that is the pumpkin he threw at me. Jason stared at the blurry orange shape for a long time. Cool. Cool? Can you imagine if we actually got a picture of the headless horseman? We'd be famous by now. He pocketed the phone. Hey, do you want the rest of this turkey? It looks like bologna. Tastes like bologna, too. He speared the slice anyway. Look, this is going to sound weird, but... I think I made you a target. What do you mean? I made you a target by... By telling you about my gift. It's some sort of magical rule. If we reveal ourselves to a normal person, whoever we tell becomes a target for ghosts. And usually... They die. And you told me anyway? No, I'd already told you. There was no way to untell you. Don't be mad. It all worked out, right? Right? 
Joey's expression had darkened. Give me a second here. And there's a bright side. What bright side? Now you'll have a gift, too. Me? That's what your coma was. Some kind of transition. You got targeted, but you survived. You'll be a founder now, like Ichabod. You'll pass your gift to your kids like he passed his to me. Joey looked worried. What kind of gift will I get? People get gifts that complement their natural abilities. It could be anything. Anything? So, I could read minds? I guess. Turn purple and levitate? Probably not. Something that expresses the essential you. Then I'll have an actor's gift. I want... What's an actor's gift? Jason shrugged. Super narcissism? Shut up. So you're not mad? Joey was shaking with excitement. Mad? This is the coolest thing ever! We'll be like the dynamic duo, fighting supernatural foes up and down the eastern seaboard. Jason laughed, feeling epic relief. I thought you'd be pissed. Nah. What's a little coma between friends? He took a bite out of a nutter butter, grinning madly. I'm going to be a superhero. But you can't tell anyone. Why not? Weren't you listening? Everyone we tell dies. You can't talk about your gift to anybody. But if they were targeted and lived, we could have our own X-Men. Yeah, or all your friends could die. Do you want to risk that? No, I guess not. But I don't do closets very well, you know? I came out at conception. Promise to keep it to yourself. Yeah, yeah. Joey shifted sideways and walked his sneakers up the brick. So, the essential me. Ooh, I know what gift I'll get. I'll get a singer's gift. What's a singer's gift? Jason shrugged. Superhuman drug tolerance? Shut up!